Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Arc's For Your Innovation podcast. We're joined with James Wang, fresh off of a conference presentation at COGX 2019. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of AI hardware. So, James, you gave this presentation exact same one last year, maybe not exact same. What's the biggest change from this year compared to last year? Hey, Sam. The AI chip market is extremely competitive. And last year I tried to kind of compile the list of companies, both startups and established companies that were working in this field. And I think I had like two dozen companies. Um, this year I tried to be as thorough as possible. And of course, many companies came to the market out of stealth mode. And I compiled a table, which I called the AI chips hunger games, which I tweeted out recently. It is just such a vibrant market all of a sudden. Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because it created companies that were building semiconductors in the 70s and 80s. Now there are no companies really. Well, until recently, and there were basically no companies doing serious hardware anymore. Certainly the fabrication plants have moved out of Silicon Valley. No one's really fabbing chips in volume in Silicon Valley. And in their place, we have Facebook, Google, and basically software companies, enterprise software and consumer software companies have taken their place. What is really interesting is that semiconductors are the new black again. Venture capitalists have once again poured money back into chip companies, and they're on the order of 40 startups now pursuing AI processors, whether it's for the data center or for your car or for smart cameras. It's incredibly vibrant again. So we have over 40 startups in the space. The total table you had had over 60 companies. We know some of the big players who are in there. We have we have NVIDIA, we have Xilinx, Intel, AMD. Do startups have a chance in this space? What does it mean for the incumbents? Is this disruption? How's this playing out? Yeah, startups do have a chance. Semiconductors being hardware is more costly to fund and to go to market with than Pinterest or Snapchat. But if the market is large enough, it is not unlikely that one of them or a few of them will succeed. NVIDIA once was a, one of these punky little startups in a back street of San Jose doing semiconductor design because of the rise of fabulous semiconductor, which is not even a new thing. But basically, Taiwan Semiconductor is your factory now. You just have to design the chips, make sure it's fault-free, and get it fab there. So a lot of these startups, just to get off the ground, only need about $15, $30 million to get their first prototype chip out. And with that, what they typically do is they generate some performance results they sample it with customers to get feedback. And if it shows the promise that their initial presentation and pitch deck showed, they will either get a little bit of revenue, but mostly it's to establish credibility. And with their next generation of their product, they go into volume production. Hopefully by then their software is more baked, that their customers more in the pipeline. Maybe their customers have invested in them. We have a company, the most well-funded 
AI chip startup in the Western countries is a company called GraphCore based in the UK. They already have investors ranging from Microsoft, IBM, to Demis Hassabis, the founder of DeepMind. So quite a deep book already. Everyone is interested for different reasons to get access to their hardware. And they've built their first generation out. They've sampled it with Dell. And the second generation using seven nanometer is going to be as complex as NVIDIA's top-end GPU. Tens of billions of transistors, incredibly large and ambitious chip, and probably will be out end of this year, early next year. And I think we'll actually see some real traction in either a kind of enterprise or a hyperscale setting. And so what does the landscape look like for these companies? When I think about this chip space, I kind of see it cut in two different ways. You have the inference versus training, and then you also have the cloud versus edge computing. Where are all of these people trying to compete? Is it all in one area? Where is the opportunity? Yeah, the traditional kind of way to break this down is to think of it as a two by two matrix. You can deploy these processors in the cloud, in the data center, or you can deploy them on devices, whether it's your phones, a smart camera, or an autonomous car. So a very different kind of power envelope and performance for these two. What's in the data center is gonna be much more powerful and less sensitive to kind of battery life, so to speak. And the other way to categorize them is by training or inference. Training is basically the process of creating a neural network. Neural networks start off with random parameters in the network weights, and it's by iteratively feeding them data examples that they get trained to be able to do useful work. So it's kind of like the same as someone going to college. In the beginning, you don't know anything, and then you spend a lot of time doing repetitive exercises, and by the end, you spend a lot of money and a lot of time, hopefully you know how to do something. That's like the process of a neural network. You train it with four years worth of examples, but in data. And then all of them go bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no student loans here. Once the network is created, once a person comes out of college, you can now use this neural network of expertise to perform actions. And typically today, that's in the form of language translation networks. You can go from English to German or image classification, find birds, cats, violent videos, or speech to text so that Alexa and things like that can understand you. So training and inference are the two use cases. Creating the network, inference is running the network uh, once it's done. And uh, you can do this in the edge and cloud. And what we see is across these 60 companies, they're going after all these markets. There are three markets, basically. You can train and have inference in the cloud, and you can do inference on the edge. There's not really training on the edge yet. That might happen in the future, but we haven't really done that today. What we see is a huge amount of companies are going after the cloud inference market. So this is why Google built the TPU version one to begin with. They saw that people were using voice to search rather than typing to search. If you use voice to search, you have to voice to text. And that's actually a very computationally intensive process traditionally. They figured, I think, that if like a third of these search queries went to voice, they would have to double their data center footprint or something like that, which is tens of billions of dollars. So they said, hey, we can't afford that. That would break our economics. So we need to specialize silicon to accelerate these inference workloads. So they built the TPU version one to do that. Version two added the feature for training since they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars with NVIDIA buying GPUs for training. And they've been iterating since then. So a lot of these companies, whether startups or incumbents, are building fairly simple accelerators that will accelerate the matrix multiplication required to do inference operations in the cloud. So then how should we think about the size of these markets? It sounds like what you're saying is the training is more compute intensive, but then once you train your neural net, is that ongoing revenue or is this something that you can do once and then 
all of the opportunities on the inference side because each generation of phone needs a new inference chip to then call on this neural net. What's the way to think about this? Normally, when you think about training, it's funny, people go to college once, maybe they go to post, they get a master's, but they don't go to college continuously all their life. With training, if you're just creating a neural network and you've done it and you deploy it, you think then you don't need to train anymore. In reality, what we learn from these hyperscale companies like Facebook and Google is that they're constantly training. And the reason why you train again is because you got new data. Maybe year one, you have 10 million examples of a particular problem. I don't know, violent videos or happy videos, what have you. But by year two, you have 20 million. By year three, you probably have 40 million. So with more examples, the network converges to higher accuracy. So for companies that are truly operating on this kind of scale, training is a continuous process because they're trying to improve the accuracy of the networks. And also they're trying to capture new phenomena. The thing about AI classification is everything is learned in terms of categories. If you've trained your network for cats and dogs and a new category koalas appear and you never accounted for that, the network has no idea how to deal with that. So you literally have to train for that new category. So if, for example, you train for six kinds of offensive content on YouTube and year seven, I don't know, some kids come up with a new kind of offensive content. They have to be trained again on that content. So just as the world and culture and media and the number of memes is exploding, training cannot be a static process because if you stop, you would just simply not know about all the new categories that appeared in the wild since your network was trained. So training is a continuous process. In terms of the opportunity, Training is kind of best thought of as a very high-end market, kind of like the supercomputing market. When training happens, it doesn't happen on one CPU or GPU. It happens across a cluster interconnected systems. Each GPU in these systems tend to be $10,000 each, and you have hundreds of these. So that market, on the scale of the supercomputing market, is probably like a $10 billion revenue market for accelerators alone. The inference market is very different. When you think about a Facebook or a Google data center, there are you know, tens of millions of these racks, very, very low-cost racks filled with very, very thin 1U or 2U servers in them. And conceivably, you could attach an inference accelerator card to each and single one of them. So assuming like 10 million of these units annually at $1,000, that's a $10 billion market. So training is like higher cost per card, much fewer systems because they're very high-end, dense systems. Inference is conceivably every server that gets shipped going forward because we need help with accelerating Moore's law and you attach kind of a relatively low cost accelerator to all of them. And the last one, the edge market is just completely different. And inside a smart camera, your bill of materials may be only tens of dollars. So the amount you can devote to silicon for AI, maybe $10, something like that. We've spoken to some of the vendors at this conference and they're shooting at this kind of tens of dollars, teens of dollars price point. But you're shipping billions of these products, maybe two billion if you think about about the scale for ARM processors doing this. So that could be like a $20 billion market. So I think if you add it all up, training inference edge and cloud, that's like 40 billion visible TAM we have today that can always grow. Right, so on that, I kind of want to ask for everyone's talking about autonomous driving. That would fall into the inference camp, is that correct? Yes, for the edge. Right, for the edge. So then something like that could be one to $3,000 per vehicle sold. You have 80 million vehicles sold each year. That's double the market that you just discussed, right? Yeah, yes. The edge market is one that's the most open-ended, I think, because literally anyone can come up with a new product category and just explode the size of that TAM. 80 million vehicles, if you can do $1,000 silicon, is that 80 billion? Yeah, so $80 billion. We're not going to get there overnight. The car manufacturers are still trying to 
a lot of them are still in the mindset of paying as little as possible. Like one of the most interesting contrasts is the way Mobileye talks about the autonomous market and the way Nvidia talks about that market, especially in kind of the 2007-17 era. Mobileye is like, Nvidia doesn't understand cost. Like car manufacturers will pay maybe $20, $50 for these things. Meanwhile, Jensen is trying to sell these $5,000 boxes on stage. I think reality will converge somewhere in the middle and it really depends on how much value you can add. If you can truly demonstrate improved safety and that that will flow to other things like lower insurance. Consumers expect this, then I think overall the Silicon value will definitely increase over time and it won't be viewed as this very repugnant cost center for automakers, but rather a way for them to differentiate, just like they pour lots of R&D into differentiating their engines and so forth. And then one thing I want to key in on, as you were talking about things, you mentioned Silicon Valley. You qualified one of the things you said earlier by saying Western companies. Where are all of these startups? Are they mainly in the US or is this happening in Europe? I believe, right? DeepMind came out of Europe originally. Or is this something that, again, China's just running with and really ramping up? So when I looked at the geography breakdown of these startups and incumbents, about half are situated in the US and half is rest of the world. China made up, let's see here, by about 14%. That's by company, 16% by company count. But if you look at money raised from the startups in these lists, China actually comes first. China took 40% of the total funding for AI hardware startups in all the companies we looked at. The US took 35%. So for the first time, we're seeing a semiconductor space where China is investing more, at least the startup level, than the US. A lot of this went into a company called Horizon Robotics, were founded by Do Engineers. They've won some large deals around kind of video analytics acceleration. So we're in the middle of a trade war with the US and China, and China has been very forthcoming about their desire to become a world leader in artificial intelligence by 2025 and to be the leader by 2030, very aggressive targets. So I think they will pump much more resources and money and just willpower into this industry. This is a great entry point for China because every time technology shifts, you have a reset and newcomers can have a chance to compete afresh. China is never going to dominate the world in desktop CPUs because desktop CPUs are run basically the Windows operating system and Windows run on x86 Intel. And only Intel, AMD, essentially only they have licenses to the x86 instruction set. The IP is protected at a fundamental instruction set level. AI chips do not have instruction sets that are standardized. AI programs run on very high level network abstractions using TensorFlow and Fiano and things like that that compile to an intermediate format called Onyx. And Onyx can be compiled to any processor. In theory, washing machines, microcontroller can be made to run these things. So without one company holding the kind of patent or the licensing keys, so to speak, anyone can compete. And China now is kind of saying, hey, since it's an open playing field, we're gonna go in, we're gonna go in hard. And then I guess on that trend, you have the Intel, the AMD who are providing to a number of players, but then you have the TPU, you have Amazon coming out with their own chip, you have Tesla coming out with their own chip. How fragmented is this going to become? Is every company who's serious about deep learning and arguably that's going to be more and more companies, are they going to be coming out with their own custom chips to match their own neural nets for max efficiency or... Is this still going to be a couple players who are distributing to the majority of people? 
I think there will be horizontal players and vertical players in this market. The new phenomenon we're seeing is the existence of vertical players at all. That wasn't true last time. In the PC era, there were no vertical players. Dell did not make their own CPUs and Microsoft didn't make their own hardware. What is different this time is because the internet has just completely changed the scale of the industry. Ben Evans at A16Z has argued this on many occasions. Um, the companies we have today, Facebook or Google, are so large, they can be their own hardware designers and it would make economic sense. Apple was the first company to really demonstrate this at a device level when they built their own CPU, the Apple A4 for the uh, Apple iPhone 4 and 4S. I think since then, they've proven out that if you're a large enough company, you can attract sufficiently high quality talent and you ship in sufficient volumes, you can use the hardware to justify the ASP or the price you can charge for consumers. So I think what will happen is you will have a few best of breed providers of silicon for the industry broadly. These will be like NVIDIA and AMD and Xilinx, Intel. They will provide it for everyone. And for companies that have a very specific need and who can attract talent and who can differentiate with a business model that will justify the cost, they will go vertical. On the cloud side, everyone is doing that because everyone has the scale. Amazon is building Inferentia accelerators because they are already buying a ton of these. And if they can in-house it, they get margin. Microsoft is using FPGAs and Google has built their TPUs. On the cloud, everyone has scale. So everyone is like, we don't have to pay the semiconductor designers. We'll design it ourselves, just hire a team of 50, 100 people. And then you have the device companies like Apple, who's basically designed their own neural net logic block on the iPhone 10X. And that's already visibly like good 10, 15% of the silicon footprint of that chip. If you look at the die map. And then you will have companies like Tesla, who has an extremely differentiated vision of their future. Their vision is we need to get to autonomous first. We can't wait even a year for NVIDIA to shrink their power budget. So they built their own silicon. So best of breed, call it vertically integrated companies would do it. But the rest will be taken care of, I think, by horizontal suppliers. So not to say that this is old news because it's still happening and we're waiting for it to happen. But what comes after this wave of hardware development. What's the trajectory forward? I think the trajectory forward over the next couple of years is that we're going to have a lot of M&A and sadly bankruptcy. We've seen this happen every time there's been a silicon boom. When Nvidia was kind of rising among its ranks, they were on the order of 40 to 80 companies doing GPUs, but they weren't called GPUs back then. They were called graphics controllers. They were not very attractive hardware units. And only Nvidia has survived that whole arc of history of 20 years of battling the VGA adapter space. There's not enough room for 40 providers of AI silicon. I think there may be a handful. The good news is it doesn't have to end poorly for these startups. The 20 or so incumbents, some have very good AI chip programs, some do not. And I think it will be very attractive for them to acquire from the pool of startups. This happens even among very mature semiconductor companies. So I think a lot of these will definitely be part of the larger companies. Probably a good half of them will fade into the history books, so to speak. But maybe we'll have less than a handful that will actually become standalone companies, maybe public companies that are at scale and provide a differentiated product. I think around autonomous, around maybe very, very low power edge devices like doorbells that last a year on battery life alone, the existing kind of chips out of NVIDIA, even Intel are, are not fanatically power efficient to do that. So there is opening. The market is so large, so fragmented, especially at the edge, there's an opening. But for things like training, you're going to have to be really good to compete head on with NVIDIA. And since none of us could be there in London to join you at the presentation, 
What would you say is the biggest takeaway from your talk that we should walk away with? I've highlighted three themes I was concluding. One is just the rise of China. We saw that in the the number of AI chip companies that are starting. China has never had anything like this. I mean, they've had actually the only example is when they copied the Groupon model. The U.S. had like one or two Groupon like companies. China had a thousand, one per city. <laughs> and it ultimately aggregated to this one mega company called Meituan. So I guess that's one example where China had like thousand X more instances of these companies. But the rise of China is definitely one of the key themes this year. We've seen Huawei come out with a full stack AI portfolio ranging from one milliwatt to 200 watts of power envelope. They are really going after this hard. And the number of Chinese startups that are feeding into each other is incredible. You have kind of designers of chips, Cambricon, that then supply IP to Huawei. So China is becoming its own little mini ecosystem in terms of silicon and AI IP. That's number one. The second one is what we talked about already, kind of vertical integration. A lot of these companies, the startups are trying to sell into big companies to win contracts with Google and Amazon. Increasingly, that's going to become less feasible as these companies vertically integrate. Google's already vertically integrated. Tesla's vertically integrated. You can't sell to a customer that already makes its own stuff. So to some degree, this really limits the opportunity, especially at the kind of hyperscale level. You have to go after markets where customers are not competent enough to be their own suppliers. And the third thing I would kind of highlight is an interesting one. Optical computing is kind of a complete different style where they're using light and the way light can create interference and diffraction to perform some of these calculations. And it turns out that they can perform lots of matrix multiplication in parallel very quickly. So we don't have one or two optical computing companies going after AI. We have seven and they come from the UK. They come from France. They come from Canada. They're there like globally multiple teams pursuing uh, lasers as the basis of uh, high parallel computation. And they're backed by uh, very, very serious investors from Google to Bill Gates to Travis Kalanick. So this is very interesting. Typically, we don't see huge tech switch in the industry because there's so much momentum and, and infrastructure built around the existing path. But I wonder if we will see potentially a fundamentally different way of accelerating AI using a very different style. The technology is quite mature. It's been around since the 60s. But now it's really being kind of taken out of the shed, so to speak, and polished for AI applications. So yeah, those are kind of the top three themes. Great. Well, thanks for sharing all of your insight with us. So COGX 2020 what? When do we see quantum computing start to make its way into this? Quantum is just a complete different story. It's been five years away and seems like it forever will be. There was one company that presented as part of my track called uh, Oxford Quantum Circuits. They spun out of Oxford University and they're pursuing similar techniques to what we've seen in the US and Canada in terms of building a quantum computer that's capable of general workloads. They didn't promise any timelines. I think a few people are saying quantum could arrive earlier than usual, but a lot of people smarter than me are trying to figure this out and when the timeline converges and it's not clear at all. But if it does happen, this could be a discontinuity for machine learning because this would be the mother of all technologies to really just have a step function improvement. And it's like, you're not growing the base, you're growing the exponent. You're truly exponentially growing the amount of computation you can do. If this works, I think that would be a very exciting world ahead. For decades, computation was driven by hardware. You had Moore's law every two years, 18 months. And then recently, pretty much all of the acceleration in computation we've seen from the software side, from the neural net side, boosting what you're getting off of existing GPUs. And now we're getting a new wave of AI hardware. Does this just further inflect the curve? How do we think about that? You need hardware, no matter how clever you get on software. The magic of Moore's law is that 
you get a doubling every two years. And you get that by being more thorough and fine-grained in your manufacturing, which we found ways to just constantly do. We found ways to go to higher frequencies of light and more meticulous ways of manufacturing. We can't come up with new software ideas that double every two years. Like deep learning is kind of a once-off thing, and we're going to keep using that, but we're not going to find a new deep learning in two years' time and another new deep learning-like technology in two years' time. So software benefits are great when we can have them, and we're going to have to use more and more of that as Moore's Law slows down. But you cannot escape the need to have fundamentally, consistently improving hardware. If Moore's Law died today, it's not dead yet. It's just in retirement. I'm it's, not it's, dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's just gone from every two years to maybe every three to four. If it went to zero, which is to say you will only have a transistor budget of 20 billion from now on, I think within a matter of years, the overall rate of improvement for everything would just dramatically slow down. You cannot compensate away that just by building better compilers and trying to fit more stuff into memory with code and things like that. So software is great. I think what really is great about deep learning is it allows you to do new problems, express new problems that couldn't be expressed in classical programming techniques. Without it, self-driving cars, image recognition, that there's no path to get there, almost regardless of hardware. But with it, you can express these problems. We need hardware to really support the long-term path. So we need Moore's Law, even it's in its old age, to keep on going for another decade and then hopefully give us enough pathway to get to optical, to get to quantum, to get to something else. Well, there you have it. That's the future of AI hardware with James Wang. Be sure to check out his TweetStorm on it. Of course, engage with us there. We're always happy to answer questions. And don't forget to subscribe to For Your Innovation to keep up to date with breakthroughs in all different sorts of technology. Awesome. Nice talking to you, Sam. Nice talking to you too, James. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.